today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It appears that Canada is now being shut out of the NAFTA talks with the U.S. and Mexico in part because of American Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer's dislike of Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Christy Freeland. U.S. and Mexican officials are going to be engaged in high-level talks later on this Thursday. But Canadian efforts to get a seat at the table have been spurned. As Tom Blackwell writes in the National Post, Lighthizer is apparently hoping to strike a bilateral trade pact with Mexico and then use that deal in an effort to gain some compromises from Canadian negotiators. Well, let's bring in Tom Blackwell, senior national reporter at the National Post. He joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it sounds like the NAFTA talks, at least when it comes to the U.S. and Canada, have triggered uh, more than uh, a diplomacy. I mean, emotions seem to be running high. It seems to be getting personal now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say uh, exactly what, what's going on and what's, uh, and what's behind this. But, um, I, you know, I, I think uh, although, you know, as, as much as the Trump administration is, uh, you know, nothing if not uh, unpredictable, I, I suspect there is you know, a strategy at, at play here. But, uh, yeah, essentially, I mean, I, I, I heard from two sources who are, you know, who are not directly involved, but are, are, are you know, getting uh, information from officials on both sides who are involved, that Canada did ask to be part of this, you know, senior level, ministerial level meeting between the U.S. and Mexico later this week. Um, and uh, it's difficult to say exactly what happened, but either... They simply got no response, or or were told uh, outright that you know no they they could they could not attend, and uh, yeah one one source uh, uh, told me that um, that apparently Robert Lighthizer the, the the senior U.S. trade representative is, is not very pleased with Christopher Freeland the Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister, um, you know partly because uh, he feels that you know in her outreach to other politicians to Congress, uh, members of Congress in Washington, that that sort of did uh, an end run around him, uh, that, that uh, you know, in, in that sort of broader attempt to lobby politicians in Washington, that, that sort of went behind his back, I guess, in a way. On the surface, it, it looks like, it sounds like, Christia Freeland has handled herself and, and has represented Canada in a very diplomatic, level-headed, coordinated way. How would you rate her performance in these talks? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert, but in, in talking to experts, um, you know, who are looking at this, I, I mean, I, I think generally uh, they feel that she and Canada generally ha- have done a good job and, and perhaps have, um, you know, acted as, as one would in a, in a sort of normal uh, trade negotiation. Um I, I guess uh, one critique, though, is that you know this is not a normal trade negotiation. This is a trade negotiation with the the, the Trump White House, and the rules have all changed. And um, you know, and, and I think that the the analysis is that, that uh, the Americans are sort of throwing their weight around. You know, that they realize that that uh, you know that they sort of have the upper hand. They have this huge market that everyone wants to have access to. And they're, you know, perhaps more than in previous negotiations, trying to sort of take advantage of that. And as such, you know, that uh, Canada has to sort of uh, respond in kind. And uh, as one expert I was talking to yesterday pointed out, you know, Europeans have recently made concessions, uh, it appears, to, to the states. 
um, in terms of, uh, you know, buying more of their exports. Um, the Mexicans appear to have uh, also, uh, you know, been quite flexible, which is why they're progressing in their in their talks. Uh, so, uh, you know, Canada maybe has to make some kind of overture like that in order to sort of get back into the uh, into the mix as a word. Our guest is Tom Blackwell, senior national reporter at the National Post. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott. Lighthizer, like President Trump, has thrown out the odd barb here and there against both Canada and Mexico. Uh, while his style may not win him any new friends, uh, has it been effective? Well, I mean, I, I guess uh, uh, I, I guess it re- largely remains to be seen. I mean, they did they did seem to make some uh, progress uh, with uh, the European Union. Uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I mean, NAFTA has not been uh, has not been renegotiated yet. Uh, so, I mean, I guess it really uh, remains to be seen whether this strategy is working um, and, and certainly does appear sort of to be somewhat of a hardball kind of, uh, uh, you know, approach where, you know, he, he said recently that, you know, that they're, they're hoping to strike a deal with Mexico in this period where the Mexican uh, government is sort of in transition. They're taking advantage of that. And then they're going to turn around and sort of use that to kind of pressure Canada to, to make more uh, compromises. Uh, so, I mean, that, that seems to be the clear strategy and, and how well it works, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to see. I guess it'll be interesting to see if it works. I mean, it, it, it sounds like Mexico is the easier negotiating partner compared to Canada, just given that our economy is much more stronger, much more diverse, and we may not want to offer many concessions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it's odd. I mean, in some ways, it seems like uh, they're having an easier time with Mexico, uh, even though the issues are in some ways more sort of complex. You know, the it seems like the major issue with uh, Mexico is, is in terms of the uh, rules of origin for uh, auto parts that, that are made in, in vehicles that are exported to the states and also uh, sort of wage levels in Mexico. And because, you know, the, the Trump administration is you know, uh, feels like a lot of manufacturing jobs have, have disappeared from the States to Mexico, you know, because of, uh, and to other countries because of, of lower wages there. So, I mean, that issue, uh, you know, is, is in some ways a difficult one to uh, resolve, uh, you know, w- without sort of uh, <laughs> ruining the, the Mexican uh, automotive industry. Um, and yet, it seems like there's been a lot of flexibility there, and and, and that they're getting close to, to a deal. Um, the the issues, yeah, with Canada are maybe less complex, but uh, Canada is at this point is less. It seems less willing to sort of make uh, concessions or, or compromises, I guess, to to get things rolling. With Lighthizer's apparent dislike of, of Freeland, does does someone have to exit the negotiations for these talks to to pan out? Um, well, I mean, I, I, uh, I that that seems un- unlikely at this point. I mean, Christopher Freeland is you know is pretty well respected and certainly has has been very much the uh, at the. Uh, you, you know, uh, pointy end of the of the Canadian uh, team, um, so it would it would seem unlikely that, that she would sort of bow out. I mean, I, I think 
just from from what I'm hearing from uh, experts, uh, is you know Canada has to make some kind of overture uh, to get sort of back into uh, the, the thick of the NAFTA negotiations. That uh, Americans are are waiting for something. The Canadian team uh, apparently, you know, is was sort of waiting until things got into the sort of final stages before sort of doing that kind of horse trading. Uh, it seems uh, perhaps that they have to sort of do some of that now, I guess, rather than wait until later. Apart from some of the verbal jabs uh, over the last, well, I guess we could say weeks and months, uh, you know, U.S. tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum imports, the retaliatory tariffs from Canada certainly threw a wrench in these negotiations. Uh, no, I, I, I absolutely. And, uh, you know, the Americans have said, uh, oh, well, have certainly indicated repeatedly that that that's sort of part of the plan that, uh, you know, that they, they, they are going to use um, that, you know, that, that uh, the, the, the fact of the of the steel and aluminum tariffs as a, a lever in the NAFTA negotiations and and Robert Lighthizer said last week that, you know, it, once a deal is reached on NAFTA, that is essentially that that they would be lifting the steel and aluminum tariffs. So, so they're, they're very much uh, inter, uh, interconnected, um, even, even though, you know, the Americans make this argument that they're, they're uh, you know, they were imposed for national security uh, reasons. Uh, they've also been fairly frank in saying, you know, this is they're they're using this to pressure Mexico and Canada and in the in the NAFTA talks as well. Did you get the feeling that the tariffs, at least the U.S. thought behind the tariffs, would get to a NAFTA deal quicker than it has? Well, I mean, uh, again, you know, uh, this Trump administration is is somewhat unpredictable and uh, seems to thrive on on creating. Uh, you know, a certain amount of chaos and, and uncertainty. So, I mean, it's it's hard to know whether, you know, to what extent this was all sort of uh, calculated out. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think at some point they felt they weren't getting what they wanted out of NAFTA or out of the NAFTA talks. So, uh, you know, uh, the, these uh, these tariffs, the steel tariffs would, would, would maybe help that out. Of course, it was, the steel tariffs were originally... You know, I think uh, a way to sort of uh, deal with um, you know overproduction of a steel in in China and and uh, and how that was affecting the world price and everything. So, I mean, it's hard to say what was the prime motivation, but uh, yeah, I think they certainly, in part at least, hope hope that this would resolve NAFTA to their to their uh, you know liking a bit faster. Just have a couple more minutes here with uh, Tom Blackwell, senior national reporter at the National Post here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Is the sunset clause and and the auto sector uh, issue, I guess, uh, going to be the hill that Canada is willing to die on? Is that still the no-go zones? Well, I mean, I I think I think on on, uh, the automotive uh, content question, I think there I think Canada is is pretty close uh, to the United States on that issue. The sunset clause is a different matter, and and uh, uh, I, I I don't think I certainly haven't seen any indication that Canada would be willing to to bend on on that one, or or, or at least uh, maybe I shouldn't say wouldn't be willing to bend, but but certainly would not uh, would never agree to a sunset clause as the Americans are, are proposing now. And and if I interestingly I, I covered a 
uh, a Senate hearing um, with uh, Lighthizer last week, and, and some of the senators, even Republican senators, were saying they would not support uh, a NAFTA. They would, <laughs> they would not vote for a NAFTA deal that included a sunset clause, and, and cited kind of similar reasons as Canada has, which is you know creates uncertainty, instability, and, and and uh investors um businesses you know even even farmers they don't want that so uh so that that would definitely seem to be uh a red line that that <laughs> very few people want to want to would, would be willing to cross over um you know there there might be more flexibility around things like uh you know dairy supply management and and some of the the uh, other issues around that uh we'll have to see Last one for you, and you'll have to whip out your crystal ball. Uh, what's your best guess on when we'll see a new NAFTA, or or if we'll see a new NAFTA? Uh, well, I mean, I you know, everyone seems to indicate that that uh, to answer to the second part of the question, that you know that that uh, you know that there will be at some point a, a NAFTA deal involving all three all three partners. Um, but uh, when I mean that, that's a very good question. I mean, Lighthizer. You know, was predicting last week that that it could happen before the end of uh, uh, of August. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's I, I could see them. You know, certainly reaching a deal with Mexico. You know, quite quickly. Whether things can be wrapped up with Canada and basically in the next few weeks. I mean, it seems uh, unlikely, but um, but but you never know. I mean, this is this has been you know just a very unpredictable uh you know uh, trade negotiations so i mean i guess i guess anything is possible it's been an interesting and, and at times uh, very scary uh, negotiations to watch given uh, the fact that so many different parts of our economy can be and, and will probably be impacted uh, tom appreciate the time uh, and continued success with the national post great writing okay thank you very much you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml Competitive video gaming may one day, one day, be included as an Olympic sport. You heard me. The International Olympic Committee is set to host a joint esports forum to better understand the rising sports. Now, the IOC and what is known as the Global Association of International Sports Federations will host a two day esports forum in Lausanne, Switzerland, to get a better grip on competitive gaming. IOC Sports Director Kit McConnell says, quote, the goal of the forum is one of engagement, calling it a purely an exploratory meeting. Now, last year, the IOC recognized esports as a sports activity, the first indication that it wants to link up with video gamers. Competitive gaming has really exploded over the last number of years. There's an estimated 250 million players around the world. That might be undercutting it. It's a market worth over a billion dollars a year. And esports is going to be included as a medal event for the 2022 Asian Games in China. In April, the International Esports Federation said that it was in talks with organizers of the Paris 2024 Olympics about incorporating the discipline as a demonstration sport at the Games. Let's bring in Nate Bender. He's the host of Checkpoint Radio from Westwood One, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Nate, how are you? 
Very well. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Thanks for coming on. You're obviously a video game nut. You have to be over the moon about this. Yeah, I, I think that this is really uh, something that is uh, both surprising and very welcome from the burgeoning world of esports. You know, it wasn't it wasn't five or ten years ago that you know, for the most part in the United States, esports tournaments were going on in the basement of dorm rooms and you know on college campuses to you know twenty, thirty, fifty people. And now it's exploded, and, you know, last weekend we just had the uh, Overwatch Grand Finals in the Barclays Arena. You know, it's it's hard to ignore how just how much of a cultural phenomenon it's become at this point. Being a Canadian, being a hockey fan myself, uh, there was a network on TV up here just a couple of weeks ago that broadcasted the NHL 2018 or NHL 18 uh, EA Sports uh, final, global final, and uh, I believe it was a, a, a Finnish participant who had won the uh, the entire thing, won the title. But as a spectator and just being a hockey fan, I was uh, intrigued, interested, and entertained in watching these guys play a video game. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, interest and investment in things like, you know, sports games iterations of esports, the Madden League. Um, EA has been very, very interested in growing their competitive scene. And, and that's one of the most interesting things is that anyone who's sat down and watched football or watched hockey instantly has context for what's happening on screen. So while, you know, a lot of people watching something like Overwatch maybe a little bit left out by how much is going on on screen on any at any one given time um you know a, a game like NHL 2K or um Madden is much more understandable now all this is being called uh exploratory at this time but what do you expect to come out of this 2-day forum you know, I, I think what I expect to come out is just a better understanding of what esports is and what it can do for the IOC. I honestly think that, you know, the the reason that the Olympics is so interested in esports is when you see the audience at something like the OWL Grand Finals and you see how young they are. Um, I, I think that that's got to be the thing that's that's attracting them the most is wanting that younger audience. We're chatting with Nate Mender, host of Checkpoint Radio from Westwood One here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. President Thomas Bach, IOC President Thomas Bach, has expressed some concern over the violent nature of esports. You mentioned Overwatch uh, and has said they couldn't be considered for Olympic Games. So what questions do you think the IOC is going to get from the esports community regarding whether it becomes a demonstration sport and, and what sports or what games should be included in an Olympic game esports uh, arena? You know, I think that's I think that's the most important question to ask because the fandom of a lot of these esports leagues are driven by interest in the game and how well the game is doing. And I actually really agree with that sentiment that you know, I, I think for the Olympics, it uh, the the games that they choose probably shouldn't be inherently violent. So I think that's a smart move. But that cuts out a large, large percentage of some of the most popular esports that exist. Overwatch being one. You know, there's there's different. I, I think what what the esports world is going to be asking is for a 
exact definition of what constitutes violence. I understand guns, showing guns on screen, that's probably not the greatest thing in the world. But a game like League of Legends has hundreds of champions that you can choose from that have a variety of different abilities. And so the violence is is not necessarily so visceral as something that you would experience in something like a Call of Duty. Fortnite would be another, you know, ultra popular game, but there's a, a, a piece of violence attached to it. Absolutely. You know, you've you've got guns, you've got attachments. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is is toned down and it's cartoony. That's absolutely true. But I do think that that is worth consideration and that's worth discussion. And, you know, that's going to be all on the IOC to determine. And I think it's going to be then on the esports community and the esports industry to react appropriately to it. Does it make maybe the most sense to play in an Olympics game at the Olympics? You know, I, it might, I've con- uh, we've, we've considered that possibility on the show before, but I think what ultimately ends up ringing a little bit hollow is seeing the digital version of what someone is doing in a very physical capacity, uh, you know, it, maybe 10 or 20 minutes or two days previous, you know what I mean? Um, that I think kind of steals a little bit of the magic and steals a little bit of, just how impressive and how much training goes into esports and to become an esports uh, competitor. In saying that, you know that critics, you probably heard from them already, will say that someone sitting in a chair twiddling their thumbs and pressing buttons shouldn't be considered an Olympian. You know, and I think that that's probably a fair conversation to have as well. Um, I, there are less physical, uh, Olympic sports already. And I think what this comes down to is the nature of competition, but the dedication that it takes to become an esports competitor. And I won't use the term esports athlete. I, some people throw that around and I think it's a little bit silly, but I think the dedication that it, that it takes to become an esports competitor is something that shouldn't be you know, understated. It takes, it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of training and uh, a lot of concentration to be able to, um, you know, make this your career. Some of those critics might be quelled if we put a, an e- esports competitor on a treadmill while they're playing a game. <laughs> <laughs> that may, that very well may be true, but you know, for a lot of these esports organizations, especially the professional ones that have been, formed in the last couple of years, they are really, um, uh, you know, they're really focused on trying to uh, make a well-rounded environment for, uh, for these competitors. And, and part of that is, you know, your, um, you know, your diet, your, uh, your physicality, how much you're working out. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the training regiments that they are putting these these kids and these young adults through um, is not dissimilar from a traditional uh, athletics program. I think, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but I think that most people, you know, uh, when they envision an esports competitor, when they envision envision someone playing a video game, they don't necessarily relate to an Olympian. I think that Olympic athlete is still kind of put on that pedestal as, you know, a physical specimen, some somebody that can do something that I necessarily can't do 
up to their standards. I think most people would probably think, yeah, I can play a video game just like these esports guys and gals, but that's not necessarily true either. Well, right, yeah, because try playing up against one of those pros and see how, how good you still right. think you are. Yeah. Um, because that will... I, I lived with a guy who uh, was, was an eSports semi-pro, and he ruined my love of the game of Super Smash Brothers forever. <laughs> I can never enjoy that game ever again because he would beat me so handily and so easily at it. These guys are playing at another level. Their, their twitch responses, their muscle memory, their hand-eye coordination are on another level, and it's something that... You know, I think if you do play the game that you're watching somebody play professionally and you know all of the, con, uh, you know, the contextual information that goes into it, you will be able to sit back and go, wow, I've never been able to do that. And it is impressive. It is a, a feat of, of skill. Got a couple more minutes with uh, Nate Bender, host of Checkpoint Radio from Westwood One. Um so it's it's going to be considered as a demonstration sport at the 2024 Paris Olympics, at least if all goes well with this forum. Do you see it debuting in 2024, or do you think the IOC is just going to take a step back to say, you know what, we might be rushing a little too quickly? Yeah, I think I think what's going to happen is that they're going to use it as a demonstration sport to kind of gauge what the interest in seeing international competition uh, on the Olympic stage is for esports, and you know, for what it's worth, I think that there's going to be a lot of very interested esports fans in seeing it. So I think if they see the right response in terms of viewership and audience, I, I think that they'll actually very much consider going ahead with this. Summer or winter Olympic sport? That is a great question. We had this debate this week on uh, on the show. And you know what? I, I, I could say it goes either way, man. Uh, you know, the, the Winter Olympics seem to have a, a, a bit more of a dragging viewership. And it's, it's definitely an inside sport. So, you know, maybe, maybe I think I would go with the uh, winter over the summer. And is there a global power right now in esports? Is there a country that's saying, yes, we want this in the Olympics because we're going to sweep the podium? Absolutely. And that's going to be Korea. Korea is completely dominant on the esports stage. They have been taking esports seriously longer than anyone else. You should, you know, look on YouTube for some of the uh, great Korean championships that have gone down and just see the number of people that come out to, uh, you know, to consume it. It's, it's become a cultural phenomenon in Korea and in China long before it even, you know, came out of the, the basement of dorm rooms here in North America. So Canadians should uh, be pulling up their stocks, stocks in terms of uh, esports competitiveness. The, hey, you know what? It, Canada's no slouch, man. You guys have got some great competitors out there. So, you know, I definitely think that if it comes to the Olympics, there should definitely be a Canadian team. It's going to be fun to follow, Nate. Appreciate the time. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. This was a blast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A Malaysian-led report released more than four years after the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 is highlighting shortcomings in the government's response to the disaster. Now, the plane, carrying 239 people from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, vanished on March 18, 2014, and is presumed to have crashed in the far southern Indian Ocean. 
Now, the head of the independent investigation team says the cause of the disappearance still cannot be determined. Yesterday, the report was uh, unveiled. It said the investigation showed lapses by air traffic control, including a failure to swiftly initiate an emergency response and monitor radar continuously, relying too much on information from Malaysia Airlines and not getting in touch with the military for help. Now, the report also raised the possibility that the jet may have been hijacked, even though there was no conclusive evidence of why it went off course and flew for over seven hours after severing communications. It said there was insufficient information to determine if the aircraft broke up in the air or during impact with the ocean. So, as I said earlier, a lot of finger-pointing, not a lot of answers, though. We've also come to learn today that Malaysia's civil aviation chief has resigned in an effort to take responsibility over the disaster. Joining us now here on the Scott Thompson Show is Larry Vance, former investigator with the Transportation Safety Board. He's also the author of MH370 Mystery Solved. And Larry joins us now on the show. Larry, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon to you, sir. Um, surprised at the report's findings? Well, surprised is one word for it. Uh, <laughs> How would you describe it? Well, more disappointed than than surprised. Uh, I don't know that I was surprised because I think that, that after everything that's happened over the last little while since my book has been published and so on, that I think that I was kind of expecting that that's the kind of report that they would come out with. Uh, they didn't really say anything new. Uh, they came out with the same uh, general type of findings that were they were coming out with prior to the release of the report. So disappointed is, is a better word for it. Do you get the, the sense that there's maybe a smidge of politics involved here? Well, I would say that's that's possible. I try not to get too much into the politics, but one can can sniff in that direction, that's for sure. It, it uh, it's, it's hard to say how much politics is involved in what happened and how much just a general general incompetence was was at work in all of this because they never got to what happened to the airplane they uh they they have words in there that 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 kind of cloud the issue like you know it could have been this and it could have been that they hint at at i think they want people to believe that it probably had something to do with somebody other than the pilots um and uh you know so that so that there'll be some some mystery to it that takes takes the emphasis away from the fact that one of the pilots took the airplane and and deliberately put it on the ocean that's what happened do you think that is an effort to maybe calm any fears that any other pilots could be of like mind i don't know that it's that i think that it it uh, i don't think that they found the the evidence that well, that's hard to say, too, because I laid it out for them in my book, what the evidence is. I don't know. They just didn't accept the evidence that's that's very apparent that that tells what happened. And uh, it, it one would think that there's a possibility that they were trying to protect the reputation of the uh, of the airline by by not uh, admitting, if you will, that the uh, that that one of their pilots could be involved in such a dastardly act. The report is very critical of the government's, uh, I guess, lack of response to the disaster. As a former investigator with the TSB, what should the government have done? What what should the action plan have been? 
Well, I think that the criticism that they were that they were putting forth was more along the lines of of what happened as the airplane was disappearing or when it disappeared from radar. That that wasn't noticed on the in the air traffic control system for quite a little while for quite a number of minutes. And then uh, because the pilot turned the, the, the transponder off in the airplane, which made it disappear from the radar screens, and he did it right at the border between two air traffic control sectors, uh, one in Malaysia and one in Vietnam. So there, there were coordination problems between them, and they never noticed that the airplane never showed up on the route that it was supposed to be going. So the criticism was that all that wasn't handled very well. The fact of the matter is, that even if that had been handled better, it wouldn't really have changed the outcome of, of the airplane disappearing and everybody ending up in the ocean. It, it, uh, it's, it's good that they've recognized shortcomings in that area, but it, it, it kind of leads people who, don't, who aren't in the know down another garden path to say, well, if all this had been better, maybe, maybe the outcome would have been different. The outcome wouldn't have been any different at all. The, uh, the airplane still disappeared. They would not have found it in time before the before it got on its southern uh, trajectory to the to the ocean, and it ended up in the water. It's, that's what would have happened regardless. We have a clip from the uh, independent, uh, or at least the head of the independent investigation team, as well as a family member, uh, a wife of one of the uh, men who died in the plane. Let's hear from both of those individuals now. We cannot establish if the aircraft was flown by any one other than the pilot. But we also cannot exclude the possibility that there's unlawful interference by a third party. We're no further ahead of finding our loved ones or what happened to them uh, four and a half years on. Uh, that's frustrating, that <laughs> makes me very angry and you know it's just another roller coaster of emotions. That, that last audio clip really gets to me because, you know, four years later, Larry, uh, you know, I still can't uh, feel for the victims' families because there's a, a big void without any answers that they are trying to fill. You know, I've, I've had that experience uh, of dealing with families many, many, many times in my career on small accidents and on big accidents. And, and it's always tragic when when you can't come up with an answer for the for the people who are left behind, um, I, I, it tears my heart out to listen to that. And and it doesn't have to be because, as I explain in the book, there is all the evidence that you need to conclude that this was a, a an event that was that was conducted by a pilot in the airplane, and and that of course wouldn't wouldn't bring anybody back, but it surely would give some sense of closure to many many of the of the families who would accept exactly that uh, i hope that that someday all or, or most of the people who are left grieving actually get to read my book and come to accept that the that the answers are there to explain why their loved ones disappeared our guest is uh, Larry Vance, former investigator with the Transportation Safety Board, also the author of MH370 Mystery Solved. Back to the report, was there one thing that you were hoping to hear, whether it was, yeah, you know, the, the pilots to blame or or we kind of sort of know where the plane is? Was was there something you were kind of waiting to hear? Yeah, for sure. The, the, the main thrust of information that I have in my book has to do with the evidence that's on the pieces that were that were recovered from the airplane. There were some pieces that floated up to the shorelines in Africa. And on those pieces, there is physical evidence to prove 
that the airplane was put on the ocean at low speed in a in a controlled ditching that could only be done by somebody who was intentionally doing it. All of that evidence is outlined in great detail in my book. I had hoped that the investigation would take that on and adapt it as their own if they wanted to, or at the very least, even if they didn't agree with it, uh, at least address it and, and put it to rest. They never even attempted to do that. There's nothing in there about that evidence, which is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. I, I can't understand it. The report said the cause of the disappearance uh, can't be determined. Uh, aside from that, do you think this aircraft will ever be found, released the black box or the cockpit voice recorder, or any, any sort of technology that will give us maybe some uh, definitive answers? Yeah, but see, they they say that it can't be found, the cause can't be found, and that's not true. That's the whole point of it all. It can be found, and it has been found, and and it's outlined in my book. But the fact is, and and the fact is, you don't need to find the airplane in order to prove what happened. And and uh, now, if they found the airplane, it would be confirmation of of what I'm saying that what I'm saying is true. And and that would be very nice, and I'm sure it would be would be a wonderful thing for the families, and it would put any last remaining doubt to rest. Uh, I don't think that they're going to find the airplane anytime soon. I think it would take brand new technologies that's not even invented yet. The the airplane is out in that part of the ocean somewhere, but there's no way that they can pinpoint where it is because they used the wrong assumptions when they were doing their searching. It's no wonder they didn't find it. Um, all, all this is is very well known and it should have been outlined in their report that they just released and none of it is in that report which again that's why i described it at the very beginning is very disappointing take us through the final minutes of what you gather happens with flight 370. what happened with that airplane is that the pilot had a plan to intentionally make it disappear in a part of the world where it would never be found uh, he almost succeeded in in flying it without any tracking down to the southern Indian Ocean. But un, un, unfortunately for him and fortunately for us, there was a satellite connection that he failed to to uh, to turn off between the airplane and, and, and the ground, which allowed the investigators to track where it went. He didn't think that that was possible, but that happened. Then when he was ditching it on the surface of the ocean, pieces came off that he did, that he anticipated wouldn't come off to flap some flat pieces and some other pieces of the airplane. What happened in the final minutes? He was taking the airplane down to the ocean. He flew to a place where daylight, where it was going to be daylight so he could see the surface. His intention was to slow the airplane down to a normal landing speed, leave the landing gear retracted, put the flaps down, land it as gently as he possibly could onto the surface of the ocean, and then uh, uh, so that nothing would, would escape from the airplane, everybody would still be inside, all the airplane would be structurally intact, and then have the airplane sink to the bottom, never to be found again. That was his intention, and that's what he tried to do. That's what he almost succeeded in doing. And the airplane is now resting on the bottom of the ocean with the fuselage intact, with, with uh, um, the engines would be off because they would drag in the water that would take them off. Uh, the right wing came mostly off the airplane. It might be still attached, but the aircraft is basically intact with everybody still inside. It's it's a couple of miles deep down in the ocean in a spot where nobody knows where it is. And how long would that have taken? For 
for the airplane to land and then sink? Well, no, from from the beginning of, I guess, uh, his first action to take the plane down. Are we talking a matter of minutes? Oh, well, no. He See, th- this, this whole thing involved him turning off course way back up over Malaysian airspace. And then he, he flew in a, a track to avoid radar tracking. Then he got out over the ocean where there was no radar, where he thought nobody would know where he was going. He flew the airplane for another six and a half, seven hours. Right. Down before, and and he and he landed it on the surface of the ocean off of Australia just before he ran out of fuel. That's that was his plan, and that's what he did. So, it was in the air for an awfully long time. You have to remember that way back at the very early stages of what he did, he was at at thirty thirty five thousand feet when when he initiated this event. His one of his first actions would be to turn uh, the oxygen off in the back of the airplane to depressurize the airplane. And basically, that, the the people in the back of the airplane would have would have succumbed at that point uh, very quickly to lack of oxygen. Then he was in the airplane basically by himself. He would have eliminated the co-pilot or the other pilot. Um, he could have locked him out, and he would have died with everybody else, or or he could have eliminated him in some other way. But the pilot was the only person alive on the airplane as it was headed down over the ocean for all those hours. So by the time he got to where he was going to actually ditch it on the surface, it was just him, the airplane, and everybody else was was had uh, had already succumbed. Could the co-pilot have been on it? Well, it, it's it's possible that the two people did it in combination, but that is highly highly unlikely. Yeah. That, uh, no, that didn't happen. I think you can eliminate that. We can say for sure that one of the t- one of the two pilots was the perpetrator. Uh, all all evidence points more toward the captain than the co-pilot, but there's no proof of that, of course. Uh, in any case, that's uh, uh, that's who everybody thinks that would be the would be the person who did it would be the captain, for various reasons that would take a long time to explain. But anyway, the uh, uh, the captain had his plan in place and he carried out the plan precisely as he had intended, and and. That's that's why it's so difficult to find the airplane because he took it to a place where, uh, on this earth, if you were going to try and hide hide an airplane somewhere under the water, that would be a good place to do it. And again, he he had every uh, uh, intention of doing it. He had he his plan was to make it disappear, and and like magic, it just disappears. It's gone from radar. And nobody knows where it went, nobody knows what direction it went, and nobody knows where it is. And again, the, the reason that that didn't work was simply because the airplane, uh, when, he, when he turned all the radios and all the, all the connections with, uh, with the ground, if he turned those all, once he turned those all off, there was a connection as an, an engine monitoring system that he obviously didn't know about or he didn't know how to turn off. And it kept in communication saying, you know, it's one of those systems where where the engine monitors itself and sends to the manufacturer all the all its information saying, hey, I'm still operating, I'm just fine, and so on. And one of the components of that information was uh, um, some digital information that allowed the experts afterwards to track the airplane along a basic track line as it flew south. Once an hour, they got a ping from it. And the ping sent information says, "Here I am. I'm down here, headed toward the the southern Indian Ocean." If if it hadn't have been for that circumstance of 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 the mistake that the captain made, if you will, of allowing that ping to continue, 
nobody would ever know which direction the airplane went. It was the middle of the night when all this started. It was just after midnight. He would have turned all the lights off on the airplane. Nobody would have seen it. Nobody would have had any radar contact with it. And and so nobody would have known where it went. we got about 30 seconds left. We can rule out any passenger involvement here? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm, it, there's There's no way that a passenger could take over the airplane and fly it. And there's no way that a pilot could, or a passenger could, could force a pilot to do what what this airplane did. No, that's that's not not the case. This is absolutely the uh, the captain or the one of the pilots who did this, and, and and that's the evidence is clear. Larry, great insights. Appreciate the time as always. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.